0: So, uh, if you are new, welcome. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own a Bible, you can have one. If you want to keep one in your car, take one, keep it in your car. Uh, if you forgot one, you can use one this morning, whatever you want to do. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables around the room. Just to let you know, uh, softball, for all of you that are now interested in playing softball, because we haven't talked about it in such a long time, but our softball sign-ups are again here. They are going on. We're going to have Monday night teams and a Thursday night team, so if you couldn't make it to Monday... Now you can do Thursday, so, and uh, our, thank you, it's kind of funny, our E2 team won like their first game on Monday night, and our E1 team lost their first game Monday night, I don't know why that works, oh, well, whatever, feels like all lost, whatever, but anyways, this is Britt, he's kind of the overseer for all the teams, he does a softball ministry here, put your hand up again, there you go. Oh, he's representing, and plus he's got his grab-me tag, so if you want to play softball, grab him. Oh, I, Seriously, you guys are going to be a tough crowd today because you're not very boisterous and happy. Uh, I'm telling you. So if you, if you did come to CTV and you were a volunteer at CTV, thank you so much because we couldn't have made it happen without you. I want to introduce you to Nicole. She's coming up. She was one of the team that went with us to Haiti. So I asked her to share this week as well so you can know what happened and then maybe kind of point you guys in the direction of going to Haiti when we go again later this year.
1: Um, our primary um, goal of being in Haiti was the three of us were kind of going to observe and capture what GCOM, um, God's Chosen um, Ones Ministry, is doing in Haiti and kind of their heart for the Haitian people and then bring that information back to you and the U.S. and to help raise money and awareness for their ministry. The primary focus of GCOM, I'm gonna call it GCOM because it's short for God's Chosen Ones, ministry is, the focus is helping the children of Haiti because they are, like Luke was talking about last week, the future, and that's through uh, medical donations, sponsoring a child, um, the feeding program, helping um, in orphanages and going on mission trips. So in um, January of this year, as most of you know, uh, Haiti was struck by an earthquake that killed thousands of people and pretty much destroyed a lot of their structures. And there's a lot of rubble in Haiti. And so the ministry of kind of has kind of changed their focus um, to earthquake relief. Um, the earthquake killed 1.5 million people and left most of the people in tent cities. Um, There is a slide with a picture of, I have two pictures of some tent cities in Port-au-Prince. There's one of them. You can go to the next slide. Most of the people are living in structures like this, which actually isn't a structure, it's a tent. Um, I saw a lot of them that had U.S. markings on them, so we definitely donated tents to their country. Um, They're living in these tent cities all all over Haiti and... There's um, close quarters, obviously, and a lot of um, illnesses can definitely be transferred easily within the tent cities. So while we were in Haiti, um, our group specifically went into two tent cities um, within the country. And the group we were with, the next slide is a picture of the group. Um, A group of about 25 other individuals from all over the country joined us um, two days after we were there. And this group was made up of different individuals of different ages, um, pastors, dads, moms, um, high school students who basically felt this year that they wanted to go to Haiti. And so they Googled a Christian organization in Haiti and found GCOM, bought a plane ticket and showed up. It was really amazing. Um, There were definitely nurses on the trip within that group and they all brought with them one extra suitcase or some form of luggage with supplies in that to donate to Haiti and um, they would spend time during the night taking inventory of all the supplies they brought and um, getting it ready for the tent cities the next day. So you can go to the next slide. So here... Here's a picture of one of the nurses and one of the translators. We had four translators with us, pretty much the entire time on the trip, which was really nice, because I don't speak French. And um, they would basically meet with um, a Haitian that would come into the tent city, or would come into the tent when we were in the tent city, and they would communicate with the nurses that there were medical needs, and then we had supplies that we could help to um, take care of whatever the need that it was. We saw everything from HIV to um, just headaches from dehydration, not getting enough water. So, Haiti is obviously a poor country and they can't afford um, pretty much any form of medication. Gary, the co-founder of GCON, was telling me that Advil is $30 a bottle, where in the U.S., we can get it for under $5. So, common things such as Advil is something that they can't even afford. Um, We can go to the next slide. So, also, Gary, when I was in one of the tent cities, yeah, those are the supplies that we were taking inventory of the night before. When we go to the tent cities, we, um, we'd also pass out sandwiches, drinks, protein bars, soap, shampoo, combs, shavers, um, just common toiletries that we don't even think about in the U.S. are so huge for them there because they might be sharing one bar of soap for a huge family or multiple families, and that might be the only bar of soap they have. So you can imagine the smell in some of the tent cities um, was pretty strong. So yeah, as I was saying, Gary was telling me that Haitians are eating as little as four meals a week. And when the second tent city we went into, he was showing me what looked like this mud patty and it was basically dry compounded dirt and he said that that's what they're eating to stay alive. So they're literally eating dry dirt. Um, You can go to the next slide. So the most joyful the most enjoyable part about being in the tent cities is playing with the kids. And um they're they're really excited to see you and play with you because they probably don't get a lot of attention. They're pretty much running around free. I doubt their parents know where they are. They have free reign in the tent city and they're really excited to play games. You can't obviously um speak with them because they speak French. So if you don't have a translator pre- present it's a little difficult, but They like to sing and dance, and they like to pick on the Americans to go into the middle of the circle and sing and dance with them. Um, And they had a lot of fun with us. Yeah, that was the second tent city we went in. So, story of the second tent city. Um, Going into this specific one, um, our van had to drive through the city to park in the back. And as we were driving through, I noticed that there was literally like a herd of kids running and chasing after our van. And we we stopped and pulled in and up on the hill they were all standing in there like jumping up and down and raising their hands and clapping and literally we got out and we're just attacked by all of them wanting us wanting them to pick us up or wanting to pick um wanting us to pick them up and chase them and run around with them. So it was really humbling to see just how excited they were that we were coming to visit them. Um you can go to the next slide. This is my last slide. The receptiveness of the Haitian people was really, really overwhelming. I was really surprised by how much they were appreciative of us coming in. Sometimes Americans aren't perceived the best in other countries, and our aid isn't always perceived by the best. But they were really, um, really thankful uh, for just basically coming over and seeing them. Um, Gary, again, the co-founder of Gcom, was telling me that the Haitian people, as a whole, feel forgotten. When they feel forgotten by their own country, um, the government is so corrupt and definitely keeps the poor poor um, and the rich rich. And when they feel forgotten by the rest of the by the rest of the world, um, so he was saying that just us coming in and and spending time with them, let alone bringing them supplies, gives them hope that they haven't been forgotten. So, I was going to Haiti expecting to see and experience the worst and I did see a lot of a lot of really really bad situations that people were living in, but what I did see is the people that are really still hopeful and gracious for um for what they do what they do have. Um the one of the girls on the trip from um who came in from Louisiana was talking about how she um after the hurricane Katrina hit um, Louisiana that she um, flew home to try to find her parents and it took her six months to track them down in Louisiana and she said that she was so impressed with it with Haiti because six months after their their catastrophe they kind of makeshift and just move on okay Aaron's giving me the flag they makeshift shift and move on and um, in America it's taking us forever just to like make do and so um, she said she was just really impressed with the Haitians' attitude. So if you want to get involved in any form of ministry in Haiti, you can go to the website for GCOM, um, whether it's donations or just wanting to learn more about the Haitian people. And if you want to go on a trip to Haiti this fall, you can come talk to me after service.
0: Uh, Two to three families live in every one of those little tents. It's kind of crazy. And they are. They're just just the nicest, sweetest people. People in America. Seriously, I got back and went to Subway. I was in the States 30 minutes, and the people at Subway tweeted me like, Garbage! I'm like, it's alright. Go back to Haiti. At least they're nice to me. Um... So anyway, yeah, if, you, if you are interested in going, we'll be doing a trip probably later this year. You can talk to Nicole. I think she's going to be the one that's heading up that trip. And if you want to actually meet Gary, one of the co-founders of GCOM, he will be here in a couple of weeks, and I'll introduce him to you as well. Uh, so we did do CTV uh, this, this week, and I just have to tell you a, a funny, not-so-funny little story. So my job on the first night, we're doing games, and my job is to man the water cannon station. I did not ask for the water cannon station. It was given to me. It was a gracious gift of God (laughs) given to me. So at the water cannon station, everybody thinks I just want to get them all wet, which I do, but I was still placed there by the person in charge of CTV, which was not me. So as I'm shooting everybody down with the water cannon, it's so great and wonderful, people will get the idea, oh, we got extra water balloons. Let's throw them at Aaron. (laughs) So Aaron, in retaliation and retribution... Starts throwing water balloons back. He can't hit anybody. And then Jeremy Denton right here, after throwing stuff at me, is standing next to the door, and I go, oh, boom, line, no lob, just straight line drive, like two feet from him, little girl, whack, back of the head. She does this. This is what it looks like. No, no, then see then, this. Then and I'm like, oh, she's like, get away from you. It was just terrible. So, this, this morning, as this is going to totally relate to this, my whole message this morning. It's all about Jeremy and the evilness of who he is. Why don't you guys stand there? You're reading God's Word. This is a verse I've read a couple times going through Esther. We'll come back to it. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and 44, and it says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would make us into a people who do pray for those who harbor ill intent for us, that we would let that slide off of our hearts so we could live in the freedom that you call us to live within. Amen. Have a seat. We are in week nine of Esther. We are over halfway through. If you have a Bible, you can open to Esther chapter 5. And we are just going to jump right in because i got lots to go through today and we have lots before we, I started talking, so I'll see if I can make this a little shorter for you. I'm doing five verses, but i got a lot to cover. Uh, this is what the background is so far. Uh, the Persian king loves his wine strong and his women naked, but he doesn't have much backbone when it comes to his friends. His first wife, Vashti. She's very good looking, apparently. All of his friends are hanging out at a drinking party. And finally, in the middle of the party, he looks at his buddies and he says, You want to see how hot my wife is? Vashti, come out here naked. And Vashti says, I don't think so. So what does the king do? He's all, that's it. She doesn't listen to me. I'm getting rid of her. He gets rid of her and he says, now I need a new queen. What should I do? So all of his buddies say, why don't you get all the best looking virgins from throughout the Persian empire, give them a year's worth of beauty treatment. They can come and spend one night with you. You can pick the best one. And the king says, my friends are brilliant. This is the most amazing idea I've ever heard. So this is what he does. And then so he ends up making a young Jew named Esther, his next queen, but he does not know she is a Jew. Then what you see is there's a subtle confrontation between Esther's uncle Mordecai and the king's advisor Haman. Everybody is supposed to actually bow to Haman as the king's advisor, but Mordecai doesn't. He does not like Mordecai he doesn't he does not like Haman because of Haman's family background. So Haman then gets offended and decides to get the king to issue a decree to kill all the Jews in Persia like you do because he's mad at Mordecai. Mordecai then comes to Esther when he hears about this and says Esther you have to do something you're the queen. And Esther says being a queen never helped a woman in Persia. I don't know what you want from me. And so he says, You have been placed in this position at this time to do something, so do something. And Esther says, Okay, tell the people to fast, to pray, and I will try and do something. So what happens last week is Esther starts to set her plan in motion. She invites Haman to a meal with the king. At the end of the meal, she simply requests that Haman comes back for another meal. Haman thinks he is being honored, but Esther is setting it up so she can get the king's wrath leveled at Haman. So Esther chapter 5, verse 9, this is where we start. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. He's very happy because he just ate a lot of food with his buddy the king. He's going back the next day for more food. He's thinking, Esther really likes me. Now, there's a lot of ancient commentaries that believe that Haman wanted Xerxes' position. And that if he would have killed the king and taken Xerxes' position, he would have had to take in some of Xerxes' wives as his concubines to show, yes, I have conquered. So he might even be thinking in his mind, oh, Esther likes me, I could take her as one of my concubines, and she must be the hottest woman in Persia. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, the Hebrew actually says he does not rise or stir, so doesn't show Any acknowledgment of Haman actually walking by him, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Again, in chapter 3, verse 2, Mordecai doesn't kneel down. Here, again, he doesn't even acknowledge Haman. But it says, Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. This is not because Haman is so noble. Haman is simply biding his time. This is revenge and forgiveness and, oh, I've been hurt, and I'm going to make you hurt. Verse 10. Calling together his friends and his friends and Zeresh, his wife, apparently his wife is not one of his friends. Uh, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials so he says let 's have a party and talk about me. How nice we call this compensating. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. So he's so embarrassed he cannot even tell them Mordecai didn't even acknowledge me. He just uses this, oh, he was, he was sitting at the king's gate. So so he has this ambiguous sitting, and this is what his friends tell him. Verse 14, his wife Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows, and a gallows is a stake. It's something you impale people on. It's the worst embarrassment in the Persian culture. This is actually the precursor to crucifixion. The Persians invented crucifixion. The Romans perfected it. Have a stake, a gallows. Have a gallows built 75 feet high, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the gallows built. So remember that. Then go, be happy, have the gallows built. Seventy-five feet high. How do you even get somebody up that high to impale on the stake? I I don't know. So today we're going to look at two people, and I think because they all relate. We're going to look at Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and a guy who was a Jew named Samson. Because they both have the same attitude and I believe it's the same attitude that we have a lot of the time. They both get offended and they sought to bring about destruction because they were offended. The issue is when you're hurt, do you get revenge or do you offer forgiveness? And I can think of no better way to illustrate this than have you turn to Judges chapter 15. Oh, Judges 15. This is what do you do with the wrong that someone has done to you even if it is just perceived like Haman. How to forgive is something we all need to learn and know about. And so I'm going to talk about revenge in this as well. And when I say the word forgive people, most people's minds go to, well, what about, but you don't understand, they did this, and it was like this, and they don't really care. Let me just do a couple things about, re- about forgiveness before we get to this section so you know where I'm coming from, so you don't think I'm saying something I'm not. The first thing is this, forgiving is not condoning. Forgiving is not condoning. You are not condoning someone's actions or someone's abuse by forgiving them. Forgiving is setting someone free in the depths of your own heart to resolve for you to live free from bitterness and anger. Jesus set you free. He wants you to live in freedom and not bondage. This is different than condoning what somebody did. Secondly, forgiving is not forgetting. If they do it 20 times, it doesn't mean you forget. It means that you forgive. Some people are toxic and dangerous, and you may need to set up strong boundaries in your life against them. You set them free so you don't have anger and rage in your heart against them. You can still remember what they've done so you don't place yourself in that same situation again, but you learn to forgive. It's the whole thing we talked about a few weeks ago. Forget, remember, forget, remember, forget that's the deal forgiveness is the state where your own heart is going to reside it doesn't mean you continue to get abused and gossiped about or lied to you forgive so you become well forgiving does not always mean reconciliation now we are people who are supposed to be about reconciliation bringing people together but sometimes that can't happen Uh, it doesn't mean you will be friends again with somebody by forgiving them it doesn't mean that you'll start another business together it doesn't mean everything goes back to the way it was reconciliation takes two people forgiveness only takes one you don't get confused some people get suckered into this hole you're supposed to forgive me let me back into your life sometimes you have to say no and you can still extend forgiveness and the love of God to them forgiveness is a different issue than justice forgiveness is a different issue than justice sometimes it's even okay to call the police on people you have forgiven Someone breaks into your house. Forgiveness is not, oh, you want my stereo too. Okay, that is not forgiveness. Forgiveness, again, is you stopping, harboring evil intent in your heart for them, even sometimes while the police haul them off to the who's Hey, okay, so who's That's Nobody uses that word anymore? Whatever, okay. So forgiveness is not condoning. It is not forgetting. It does not always mean reconciliation, and is a different issue than justice, but forgiveness is Personal, it is personal. You forgive people, not institutions and businesses. No one has ever been wronged by the church. You are not angry at the church or walk away from the church. You are wronged by people in a church. You are wronged by people at that school or that former job that you used to have. You cannot forgive a business. It is someone in that business you need to forgive. Forgiveness is personal. You with me so far? Okay, and forgiveness is a process. It is a process. You this morning may be irritated and harboring something against somebody for like ten years, and maybe your step this morning is just, I will not kill them today, and, and that's that's a good first step. It is a process. You know, Baby steps are always good. It's progress. If you've had garbage in your life for years, it's hard to forget that in just 10 minutes. Sometimes forgiveness isn't just setting someone free. It's the realization that you have become a certain type of person because of your unforgiveness. And you will have to unlearn that behavior as well. One step at a time. So, Haman, he is a guy, he is stuck at the -the over-the-top reaction, I'm going to get even with everybody, I will show them, they'll learn not to mess with me, like Jeremy when he throws a water balloon at me, he'll learn not to mess with me. So, in Judges 15, you get a day in the life of a guy named Samson. He is a dude, he probably has a raised truck and chews tobacco and had Ted Nugent hair and too much (laughs) testosterone, this... This is Samson, and there's a whole lot of background in this, but I'm not going to give it to you. I just want you to spend a day in the life with Samson. Judges 15, starting in verse 1. Later on, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. I don't get that, apparently, guys. Take a goat when you go see your wife, they might like that. Kind of freaked mine out, but whatever. He said, I'm going to my wife's room. And you're like, with the goat? That's kind of weird. (laughs) But her father would not let him go in. I was so sure you thoroughly hated her. And this is all backstory, okay? I was so sure you thoroughly hated her, he said, that I gave her to your friend. <gasps> Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. So the first thing you realize is that Dr. Phil and Jerry Springer both want these people on their show. It's like, it's, we gotta get them on there, you know? And we read this, we're sort of like, what? What kind of craziness is this? Is it the goat part or the dad part? What's going on? You haven't been around for a while, so I gave her to your friend. Her sister has a nice personality. I mean, you can just see, verse three. Samson said to them, "This time I have a right to get even with the Philistines." So he blames the whole people for what just happened. I will really harm them. This sounds a lot like Haman. I'm going to get them all because of this. So he went out like. He would do. And caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches, and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. And I think he must have got the instructions off the Internet because it's the only place you get instructions for things uh, like this. He burned up the shocks in the standing grain together with the vineyards and olive groves. Now, have you ever seen a fox? Yeah, okay. They're quick and they're cocky, and I have no idea how you'd catch one without a bear trap. But he catches three hundred, ties them together, takes the torches, runs them through the field, burns down all their standing grain. This is their major source of income and food. But it's also more than food. Because who brought the grain and who grew the grain and who brought the food from the ground? Your God. So Samson is saying, My God's better than your God. Because I can catch foxes and run through the grain. Verse six. When the Philistines asked who did this, they were told Samson, the Timnite son-in-law, because his wife was given to his friend. They're like, well, oh, he was mad, you know. Uh, so the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Okay, Let that just sink in. Okay, <laughs> Burn them to death. It goes from Samson and a goat to some foxes to the death of two people. Now listen to Samson's state of mind, his ego. Samson said to them, since you have acted like this, because the fox is saying, that was totally okay. You know, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. Now, what would that revenge look like? Should he build a stake or a gallow 75 feet high and impale people on it? You know, what what should he do? What do you do in your life when you feel like, oh, they've really wronged me? How do you say, well, okay, my revenge is enough. Now I feel better. Now I'm now I'm satiated. I got my revenge, I'm done. Now I have peace. What do you do in your life? To get yourself peace. Is there a panel that says, Okay, that was okay. Now this is too far. Now stop. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Edom. Verse 9. The Philistines, because now it's their turn again, went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The men of Judah asked, Why have you come to fight us? We've come to take Samson prisoner. They answered, To do to him as he did to us. So round 3. Then 3,000 men. Okay, so it starts with one guy and a goat and his father-in-law and some foxes. And now it's three, it's just crazy. 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Edom and said to Samson, don't you realize the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. I'm justified. I'm okay. I'll build a stake, impel Mordecai on it, and then I'll feel better. Verse 12, They said to him, We've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, Swear to me you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered, We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him, shouting, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. And you're like, what what is that i'll give you a tiny little backstory on this so we can be on the same page in the hebrew scriptures this phrase spirit of the lord came upon so and so it means god gave power or giftedness for a purpose When the Jews are building the temple, God's spirit comes upon certain people with great artistic abilities, great building abilities so they can build this temple. The psalmist is given abilities for great artistry, great poems, great songs. This phrase would essentially mean this person was given gifts and talents to be used by God to bring his kingdom to the earth. Usually this would involve healing and redemption. So is Samson using this profound strength to bring about God's purposes? Do we, as a people, if you call yourself a Christian, God's Spirit resides within you? Do you use the strength and dignity that God's Spirit gives to you to offer forgiveness and grace to those around you? Or do you get caught up when you're hurt and not want to offer forgiveness yourself? What do you do with the power that God has given you? There's a whole story that goes on here because we are just like Samson. So Samson uses this power. It says, The ropes on his arm became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Verse 15, Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, which apparently is just laying around like you got a goat, you got jawbones of donkeys laying around. He grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. This reads so much better in the King James, by the way. I just want you to know that. With a donkey's jawbone, I have... Boy, you guys are tough. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. This is a song. He starts singing this song. He kills people and then he becomes happy. With the donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With the donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone and the place was called Ramoth Lehi. It means uh, Jawbone Hill. This is a crazy story, right? Nobody backs down. Everything escalates. And eventually, Samson does what all of us would do. We grab a donkey's jawbone and kill a thousand people. Have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go and be happy. Why? Because you get your revenge. Revenge is picking up the jawbone to bring about another round. I'll give you two things about revenge. Revenge always escalates. It always escalates. This time I have a right. I merely did to them what they did to me. I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. You ever hear the story of Romeo and Juliet? No. Okay. You have, you have these two families, the Montagues and the Capulets, and this rivalry that ends with this death of two lovers. You know what detailed explanation Shakespeare gives as to how it all started? He said, Sometime long ago, someone said an airy word to another. And now it's just something that goes back somewhere because revenge just escalates. It starts with goats and foxes and ends with people. It starts with Mordecai not bowing. It ends with a stake 75 feet tall. Revenge always escalates. And sometimes years later, you don't even know how it started. It's just this thing that's in the air. Revenge always escalates. And the second thing is revenge is always tempting. It's always tempting. I'll show you a picture. This. This is Tina Fey and Sarah Payment. It's like, yeah, okay, they look a lot alike Right? It's like, who's who? Exactly. So there were some skits that Tina Fey started to do during the last election. Some people thought they were, I thought they were kind of funny, but you know, other people didn't. And, and they start, all these bloggers start saying a, a whole bunch of stuff. And this starts going to a place that is beyond, I don't like politics. It goes to, you're vile, you're nasty, to very inappropriate things about women. Now, so, so bloggers make all of these comments. And what happens is Tina Fey actually wins an Emmy. And I want you to watch the clip of when she wins an Emmy. This is it right here. So she gets up there. She addresses them by name. What does the crowd do? They cheer. They cheer. Why? Why? Because revenge is always tempting. Revenge is very tempting. Emmy, national TV, it feels good. We all watch it and we think, yeah, you go. Revenge is intoxicating. It feels good to let other people know you're not going to be pushed around. You hurt me. Now here's what's coming to you. I'll call you on a national TV. It's like you guys ever play that early game Pong? Very hard rules, right? A ball in the middle. You go, pong, pong. If you have the really expensive one, it speeds up. The more you pong, pong. harder and faster. That's what this is. It's like Samson, Tina Fey, Romeo and Juliet, Haman, Mordecai. It's Pong, back and forth. Samson is primitive. He is barbaric. He is brutal. I merely did to them what they did to me. This time I have a right. I'll show you. Haman and Mordecai, they're in the pinnacle of refined society. Have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go to the king to the dinner and be happy. Forgiveness begins when we are willing to put down the jawbone, deconstruct our gallows that we built 75 feet high in our backyard and surrender our need for revenge. Turn to Romans chapter 12 in the New Testament. Here is, In Romans 12, Paul starts to talk about what it means to surrender the right for revenge. This comes in forms like gossip and the cold shoulder, very subtle comments of somebody else, maybe overt comments. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Starting in verse 17, he starts off and he says, "Do not repay anyone evil for evil. I merely did to them what they did to me. That doesn't work." Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Don't use their behavior as an excuse for your own. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Now why in the world does Paul have to drag God into this? leave room for god's wrath because we have our own personal code we have our own law of what's right and what's wrong you could go to death row find a murderer in maximum security go hey come here punch him in the face and he would be like hey you can't do that that's not right you can't do that to me because everyone has their own sense of justice even when it's jacked up we know when we think we have been violated when someone violates your code you go looking for justice they should be held responsible we're looking for our own higher court of accountability and we get bitter and we get angry we don't want to forgive because somebody hasn't had what's coming to them in our timetable in our code justice has not come they have not been punished like we think they should be punished or it's taking too long have you ever heard someone say it seems like they're getting away with it that's exactly it So then we go to revenge because we don't trust any higher law than ourselves. We grab our jawbones, we build our gallows, we go on TV, we gossip to our friends. When you read, leave room for God's wrath, the Hebrew would literally be God's justice. God's justice. You know, God looks at gossip and he gets angry. God looks at famine, he gets angry. God looks at lies, he gets angry. He looks at the manipulation of his kids and he gets angry. Paul is saying you leave room for God's justice. When we take it upon ourselves, we are saying, God, I don't like the way you do it. Out of my seat. When we think our punishment and our time is more proper than God's, revenge is a lack of trust in God. And it becomes easy for us to excuse our own actions. I merely did to them what they did to me, because we are now making our own law. We make ourselves the accountability. This is why Paul turns interpersonal conflict back to God. So I'll give you these steps that I I think you see here. Number one, you surrender your right for revenge. You surrender your right for revenge. Second thing is you trust God. Again, this is different than legal issues. Legal issues, I'm sorry, see right there, I don't want to trust God. (laughs) Legal issues do not go away simply because you forgave someone. Forgiveness, again, is the personal releasing of people so you can be free as Jesus intends for you to be. 1 Peter 2.23 talks about Jesus. says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate when he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus entrusts himself to God the Father. In the face of mass injustice and wrong, he entrusts himself to God, the God who is fully capable of justice. Jesus doesn't just entrust himself. He entrusts those who have wronged him. So you certainty right for revenge, you trust God. And number three, turn the person who has wronged you over to God. He is much better able to handle it than you are. You set them free so you can be free. Revenge says, this person belongs to me. It says, this time I have a right. We must realize people belong to God. I believe this is one of the reasons why Jesus said in Matthew 5.43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The word pray is the Greek word persoukiomai, and it, and it has a positive connotation to it. It means you wish them well. You pray for God's best on them, reorienting your heart so God's best comes their way. And sometimes God's best could be jail. Sometimes God's best could be therapy, could be some healing for their craziness. But you pray for God's best to come their way. It is even stopping a passive-aggressive, well, I won't hurt them, but I wouldn't be upset if someone else did. It's, you get rid of that as well. Do you see how far Jesus pushes these things? We're like, I don't want to trust you. I want to punch him. I want to run him over in my car. You trust yourself and another person to God's justice. This becomes the issue in the book of Esther as you go through basically the rest of the book. Now, when you look at Esther and you think about these questions I just asked you, you have some questions to ask yourself. And I'll get these really briefly, then we'll go. Uh, Is there any situation you are in where you need to drop the jawbone or deconstruct your gallows? Is there any situation you have to do that? Even if you didn't start it, is there any place you need to do that? And you may need to go talk to somebody. I wouldn't use those words because then you've got a whole discussion of like donkeys and slaughtering goats and stuff like that would be kind of awkward. But this could be at work. It could be a family reunion. Sometimes I think, you know, when little kids are born, you should just give them a job on a holster because it, they just, like that. It could be, you know, it could be in a marriage back and forth and back and forth and seven years ago you said or did this and you got the cold shoulder and it's like 11 years later do you, do you really think after like 11 years of the cold shoulder and being angry someone's going to be like oh yeah I get it now oh I totally get it I'm so sorry I t- wow 11 years of that and just yeah drop the jawbone just drop the jawbone second thing is there any situation you have excused your own wrong because of what someone else did to you I merely did to them what they did to me I only said this about them because they said this about me. Other people should not be able to skew your moral compass to pull you away from Christ. And third, is there any situation that you need to trust to God? Is there anybody you actually need to learn how to wish well? Have you been wronged or have you wronged someone else? You need to trust God. Sometimes you hear this, and it does sound very simple, but it's very hard. It is very hard to do. But God calls us to leave all things in His hands. You let Him do His job. We are not good gods. And you will never be truly free in your life until you give every part of your life to Jesus. How do you drop the job loan? How do you burn down the gallows? You can't. You can't. You need Jesus. You must lay everything at His feet. And He offers you freedom. And you can live the life he calls you to. That's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is we're terrible. But he is good. And he offers his goodness to us because he is so good. That is who he is. We must be a people who learn to surrender our lives. Surrender our need for revenge. And the feeling that like, oh, people just aren't seeking me for you. You've got to let that go. Because you will never be the person God calls you to be. Until you let it go. And God is calling you into something deeper and greater and more wonderful than you can ever imagine. It's one of the reasons every week I bring you guys to communion. Communion is a place where we remember surrender. Surrender. You take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice, and it reminds us that we are a people who need to surrender to Him daily. Daily. We worship. Him through the taking of communion. It is a beautiful thing when we reorient our lives because He grabs a hold of our hearts and reorients us. We're going to worship God through song. The band's going to come up. And we're singing some songs that remind us of God's grace and His goodness and who He calls us to be. Uh, we're going to worship God through prayer. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. If you have something in your life that you cannot let go of, you're walking around and you've got you know, the the conceal and carry permit for your jawbone. (laughs) You need to learn how to get rid of that. They would love to pray with you. We're doing something different now. We're going to try this out a little bit. Sometimes because the hallway gets kind of packed and people have a hard time grabbing them to go pray, they'll be in the back of the hallway to pray with you if you need prayer. But even after the service, if you need someone to talk to, you feel like it's too awkward to go back there, they'll be up here too. They'll be hanging out. Just grab one of them and take them to the side and talk to them. They would love to talk to you about who Jesus Christ is, and also what, it, what it, we look like when we live our lives in the freedom that He calls us to because the freedom He gives us is for the purpose of worship. You cannot properly worship God when you are running around slinging a jawbone. We are worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the side wall and on the very back and we give because God gave so much to us. So we give as part of our worship. So we give that opportunity every single week. And we're going to worship the fellowship. There's food and coffee and stuff in the back. You can go eat some of that. Again, get to know some people. They'll offend you. You'll get hurt. And then they'll be doing their Christian duty, helping you to learn how to drop jawbones. It's wonderful. All these things God puts in our lives so we learn how to worship Him individually but also as a community together. And so we try to give this opportunity to you every single week. Uh, God is good. We are not. But He offers His goodness to us. Drop the jawbone. Offer people forgiveness live in the way God calls you to live because it's a much better way to live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth and the goodness of your gospel and your words to us. We ask that you would take our hearts and speak deep truths to us. Convict us of all the ways that we hold on to our own revenge and not offer our lives to you. God, your hearts, your heart for us as a people is to glorify and honor you. But when we are a people who hold to unforgiveness and revenge, it is not glorifying to you because you are the God who knows how to do it justly and rightly. And we as a people do not. So have us lay Our lives in your hands. The people that we we ourselves have wronged and those who have wronged us. Be our refuge and our strength and our hope. So that we can be a people of refuge, strength, and hope. Thank you for being such a good God to us. Amen. Amen. Thank you.